The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church where we are continuing in our study in the Gospel of John in chapter 18. Um, after spending some time alone with His disciples, teaching them and then praying for them, our Lord and the disciples leave the upper room in Jerusalem and head to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. While in the Garden, a crowd of Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers, and I think by these two groups, John's trying to tell us the whole world, Jews and Greeks, the world is coming against the Lord. They come to arrest Yeshua. Now, when they come in to arrest Him, the other Gospels have Judas going and kissing Him. John says the Lord got up and identified Himself. He asked them, who'd you guys come to arrest? What are you here for? And they named Him alone. We're looking for Yeshua. So Yeshua responded, I am, using the Tetragrammaton, the, the name of God, and the whole crowd just went backwards and fell to the ground. Now think about this. You're a Roman soldier. You're one of the temple police. You're going to arrest this man. He says, I am. He uses the name of God and you all just fall down on the ground. That had to be scary. Like, who are we dealing with here? But also be, had to be kind of humiliating. Uh, we're here to arrest this guy. We're laying on the ground. We've got to pick our... You know, I mean... Yeshua and His disciples are standing there. Everybody else is on the ground. And they're scrambling, trying to get up. Yeah, we meant to do that. You know, I mean, they look kind of foolish. When the crowd gets up, Peter's been kind of emboldened by this whole thing. He knows who the Lord is. He whips out his sword, Machaira, and he severs the ear of the high priest's servant. Well, Yeshua immediately brought the situation under control because that could have just erupted into a total war right there. Uh, Yeshua heals The servant puts his ear back on, tells Peter, put your sword up. And then Yeshua says, I've come to drink the cup that my Father has given me. Peter, I'm here for this. This is what it's all about. He was determined to be lifted up on the cross and provide salvation for His people. So John doesn't tell us this, but when Yeshua was arrested, the other Gospels tell us the disciples fled. Day after day, the Lord said, I was with you in the temple teaching... And you didn't seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left Him and fled. So all His disciples, they just take off. He's arrested, and they run away. And then verse 12, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Yeshua and bound Him. Now here we see the religious leaders, the temple police, the Romans, arresting Yeshua, binding Him, and putting Him on trial. Now, if you can, imagine maggots. Maggots, okay? Setting up a court and summoning the President of the United States to make His appearance. Telling Him that He must answer to them. Well, multiply that by infinity and you've only begun to grasp what's happening here. Here, in our text for today, we have sinful maggots passing judgment 
on an immense, eternal Lord of the cosmos. The One without whom was not anything made that was made. Mere mortals sustained moment by moment by the living God in One whom they live and move and have their being, putting Yahweh on trial. They're passing judgment on God. They're asking, what do we do with Him? Shall He live? Shall we put Him to death? Sinners evaluating the thrice holy God. We sang this morning, holy, holy, holy. These maggots are standing in judgment of Him. They're searching for evidence with which to condemn the Ancient of Days. Isn't that ridiculous? As ridiculous as this sounds, it still happens every day. You may even be involved in doing this. You know, we often sit in judgment on Yahweh. You're saying, well, I would never do that. How do we do that? Something bad happens and we ask, how could God do a thing like that to me and my family? That's you sitting in judgment on the Almighty God. How dare you? How could you? How do you do this? You're judging God. We all do that at times. How could He let this happen? Believers as well as non-believers at times in their life sit in judgment on the God who created them. The prophet Isaiah put it like this. You turn things upside down. It's upside down when man judges God. He says, shall the potter be regarded as the clay? you got to understand here, God's the potter, we're the clay. The clay's here judging the potter. That the thing made should say to its maker, he didn't make me. No, no, that potter didn't make me. Or the thing formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. In other words, the clay is calling the pot, potter stupid. He doesn't have any energy. He doesn't know what he's doing. How crazy to sit in judgment on God the Creator. What our attitude should be is found in Deuteronomy, I mean Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Yahweh, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. You know, I think one of the greatest problems that we face as Christians is getting the right perspective on who God is. He is God. He is the Creator. And when we really get that, then we begin to submit and humble to whatever God has for us. Whatever situation, whatever trial, whatever. He is God. Now in our text for this morning, we see sinful humanity sitting in judgment on the Creator. We see Israel putting their God on trial. They're judging the judge. You know, throughout the Scriptures, it's made very plain that the Lord Yeshua is the judge of the universe. We saw earlier in our study of the Gospel here of John that all judgment has been committed into the hands of the Son by the Father. John 5.22 For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He's the judge. John 5.27 And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. He's the judge. It's not men. 
Paul, writing to Timothy, said this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Yeshua, who is about to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom. So the Lord Yeshua has had all judgment committed into His hand. He's the ultimate judge before whom all men appear. And in our text, the judge is being judged by His creation. The irony of this text is really astonishing. The creation is judging the Creator. Now, in our text for this morning, and we're taking a big chunk of text today, okay? Because this is narrative. And we can move along and we don't have to go verse by verse and get every word here because it's telling us a story of what's happening. So we're taking a big chunk of verses. But in our story for today, Lazarus is following two subject lines. He's following the trial, or the mock trial of our Lord before Annas and Caiaphas, but he's also detailing and describing Peter's denial. He goes back and forth. In verses 12-14, through 14, we have Yeshua being tried before Annas. Then in verse 15-18, through 18, we have a section that has to do with Peter's denial. Then in verse 19 through 20, we're back to the trial before honest. Then in verse 25 through 27, we're back to Peter's denial. So he's taking these two stories and he's putting them together because he wants us to see the comparison here. So Lazarus shifts the scene back and forth between the interrogation of Yeshua by honest and the interrogation of Peter by those in the courtyard. He goes back and forth from trial to denial. It seems that his purpose is to contrast these two questionings. Now, to understand the account of Yeshua's trials here, we need a little bit of historical background, so let's spend a minute looking at that. There's actually two trials here that Yeshua goes before. Our Lord has an ecclesiastical trial before the religious leaders of Israel, and then He has a civil trial before Rome. He's judged by Israel, Then he's judged by the Roman authorities. Both trials each have three phases. And both were filled with illegalities. There just was nothing just about the trials that they're carrying out here. Yeshua first appeared before Annas. It was a preliminary inquiry. And this this, this appearance before Annas is totally whacked out. This is something that should not have happened at all. Okay? Honest tried to get Yeshua to incriminate himself, which was illegal. And then secondly, he appears in an illegal midnight trial before Caiaphas, who was serving at high priest that year. Yeshua told Caiaphas that he was the Christ, the Son of God. And when he said that, that resulted in the Jewish leaders declaring him guilty of blasphemy. You blaspheme! Matthew 26, 63-66 says. And then finally... They take him before a formal session of the Sanhedrin, which formally condemned him to death, Matthew 27, 1 and 2. But Roman law, see, the Jews were under the Romans. And Roman law prevented the Sanhedrin from putting anyone to death. And so while they condemned him as worthy of death, they couldn't actually put him to death. The charge that they brought against Yeshua was a religious charge of blasphemy. And the Romans didn't care anything about that. They're not going to put anybody to death for that. They didn't care about their religion. 
And so the charge they accused Yeshua of to the Romans was treason. How'd they come up with that? Well, they told the Romans that Yeshua taught there is another king besides Caesar, which he did in fact teach. All right? He was that other king. All right? And that's what they were worried about. So he's charged before Pilate with treason. And then Pilate tries to find, he tries him and he finds there's really no cause for putting him to death. And so when he hears that Herod happens to be in the vicinity, he sends him off to Herod, hoping that Herod will settle this matter. In other words, I'm passing the buck. You take care of it, Herod. But Herod questions Yeshua, and Yeshua didn't say a word to Herod. So he's frustrated, so he sends him back to Pilate. So sending him off to Herod didn't help at all. And Pilate finds nothing in him to be judged. But because of the pressure of the Jews, he caves and he hands him over to be crucified. Both trials were a mockery of justice. Lazarus does not, as is his custom, repeat the events of Yeshua's trial before the Sanhedrin because it's covered in the Synoptic Gospels. We go into great depths of this mock trial. All right, with that as an introduction, let's look at the text together. 18, chapter... Uh, Chapter 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers and the Jews arrested Yeshua and bound him. First they led him to Annas. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, captain here is from the Greek word hiliarakos, which literally means commander of a thousand. He was the officer in charge of the Roman cohort of soldiers. He's evidently the person with the most authority here on the scene. Because he's a he's Roman. He's, these Romans are under him, the Jews are under them. So he's taking charge. He says, and then he talks about the officers of the Jews. This is the temple police. Now they played a part in Yeshua's arrest. Again, we have Gentiles and Jews arresting Yeshua. John's trying to tell us the whole world is coming against the Lord. That's how he used the term world. Jews and Gentiles. Not every single person, but both groups. So the arrest Yeshua at this point And Matthew and Mark tell us that the disciples flee when he's arrested. They take off. They disappear. Fulfilling the prophecy of the Tanakh that when the shepherd was smitten, the sheep will scatter. It says they arrested Yeshua and they bound him. Now this is a detail that's omitted in the synoptics. None of them talk about binding him. But John mentions this because, you know, John wants to, to see more that's behind here. And I think maybe here he's alluding to Abraham's binding of Isaac. Genesis 22.9 says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood on the order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid on him the altar, the top of the wood. So he binds his son. And Isaac was a type of Christ. Psalm 118 says this, Yahweh is God. He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. So just like the Jews would bind their sacrifice, so here we see the priest taking Yeshua, leading Him off, binding Him to bind and kill on behalf of the nation. This is the sacrifice. That's what John wants us to see. Yeshua is becoming a sacrifice here. He is bound. He's going to be sacrificed. Now, again, let's think about this scene. Yeshua had just told them, He is Yahweh, 
and with a flash of glory, knocked them to the ground. Hundreds of fully armed Roman soldiers and temple police, and they're all laying on the ground. They get up, and they bind Yeshua. Not me. I mean, that makes no sense. I mean, but it shows how blind they are. This guy speaks, we all fall down, but we get, let's tie him up. Like, that's going to do anything. It's just, it's crazy. It says, first they led him to Annas. Now, from the Garden of Gethsemane, where they arrest him, to the house of the high priest would have taken, it's about a two-mile trip, all right? How would you like to have been those soldiers on that trip? Two miles, I'd be scared the whole time. What's he going to do? What's going to happen? What, you know, I wouldn't want to be too close. I mean, are we really going to get him there? You know, we know whatever we bound him with, that's not going to hold him. What, what, I mean, it had to be a little nervous for those guys, all right? They must have been relieved when they got there. Phew, here, you take them, Honest. Now, the fourth gospel is unique in recording the Lord's hearing before Honest. The other ones don't talk about this. Honest is the former high priest. Now, if you read this text, it's going to call him the high priest at times, which he actually is not at this time. He was. And some try to explain that by saying, well, it's like our president, we still call him president after they're not. Well, that's true, but he really, he didn't hold the office, but he was the high priest, okay? In other words, he's behind the scenes, but he's running the thing. He's the real power behind Caiaphas. Yeah. The high priest was the ecclesiastical head of the nation. He was the administrative head of the nation. He was the political head of the nation. And he was the judicial head of the state. So the high priest was a very important man. Ordinarily, the priest came from the tribe of Aaron, the tribe of Levi, and the high priest came from the family of Aaron. But in the time of the Romans, the Romans appointed the high priest. So you can, that should tell you how the Jews felt about their high priest. This is a Roman appointee. We hate Romans, so we're not crazy about the high priest. Lazarus' mention of um, Caiaphas being the high priest here, he says high priest that year, that gives us a clue about the state of the high priesthood. Because normally, how long was the high priest to serve for? Anybody know? Life. It was a life appointment. I'll tell you, when going, in going through and reading this trial, I thought things have not changed politically much at all. Our political system is just as corrupt as we see going on here. You know, paying people, people making big money, you know, in political offices. According to the law of the Torah, the high priest was to hold his office for life. But greatest, like other foreign commanders, he feared that the high priest for life would be too strong of a position. He'd have too much influence on the people if they just left him in. So they selected a high priest who would serve for a year at a time. We'll get him in for a year, get him out. And I believe that Lazarus dwells in honest because he's the real power. He's the driving force behind the condemnation of Yeshua. Honest was not the high priest at the time. Caiaphas was. Honest had been the high priest from 86 to 8015. He was then deposed by the Roman perfect greatest according to Josephus. However, deposing Annas didn't do much to curb his influence. And many Jews still considered him the rightful leader of the covenant people. And he remained in control because the five next high priests were his sons. 
then a grandson, then his son-in-law. Okay, so he's, he's not the named high priest, but he's still, the Jews viewed him as that. All right? Many biblical historians think that Annas was the real leader of the priestly Sadducee party at the, and the prime motivator behind the plot to kill Yeshua. And that makes sense. It included the information that Yeshua was first taken to Annas. When, he, when John includes that, he seems to be making the same suggestion. This is the motive. This is the guy behind it. All right, Taking Yeshua to Annas first allowed enough time for Caiaphas to assemble the members of the Sanhedrin and also to dig up some false witnesses. Because you needed witnesses. So we've got to get some false witnesses to testify. Now the Talmud has an interesting passage on Annas that gives us a court, an idea how they thought about Annas at the time. It says this, Woe to the house of Annas! Woe to their serpent's hiss! They are high priests. Their sons are keepers of the treasury. Their son-in-laws are guardians of the temple. And their servants beat the people with staves. So they didn't think too, too highly of the high priesthood. Now, as a Sadducee, he was the equivalent of a modern religious liberals, basically denying what Scripture plainly teaches. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So the office was more political than spiritual. And at this time, that's definitely the case. You know, it was just a big sham, basically. Well, at the time of Christ, the court of the Gentiles, the outer court of the temple where the Gentiles could come to worship, had become host to what was known as the Bazaars of Annas. Annas granted permission to family members, this was, you know, a lot of nepotism going on here, to begin what looked like a big flea market in the area reserved for the Gentiles to seek the Lord and worship. This is where Gentiles were come to worship. They got this big flea market going on. All right? They got noisy animals. They got bargain hunters. They got crass merchants. They're all crowded into this area that's supposed to be a dignified place of worship and contemplation, and it's not at all. And these people are giving kickbacks and, and fees to the priestly family who kept the bazaar running to the total neglect of why the temple existed at all. Annas controlled the lucrative business that went on inside the temple. See, he's behind the scenes. He's running all this. When pilgrims came to Jerusalem for, you know, adult men, had to come three times a year. They had to bring sacrifice. They could bring their own sacrifice. That was allowed. But when they got there, the priests would examine their sacrifice. And most of them wouldn't qualify. Okay, why? Because the priests were selling their own sacrifices and making good money on the sacrifice. So they'd say, I'm sorry, this, this just doesn't cut it. It's not, it won't work. You're going to have to buy one of ours. And so it got to the point where people stopped bringing sacrifices. They just bought them when they got there because they knew there's no point in carrying this thing along. It's not going to work. Rather than go through all the hassle, they just bought an animal when they got there. Also, if you came with Roman or other foreign currency, you couldn't use that. You had to change it into temple currency at an exchange rate that made a nice profit for the money changers who paid a percentage to the high priest. And since there was actually hundreds of thousands of pilgrims in Jerusalem three times a year for these feasts, 
the high priests were getting so wealthy it wasn't funny. The Romans even talked about the fact that, Josephus talks about it, when they destroyed the temple, they found this stash that Annas had built. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars that they made through all this corrupt stuff that was going on. So when this prophet from Galilee comes along and upsets the vendors in the temple, makes a whip, tips over the temple, drives these people out, Annas and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, are not happy. This is just like Christians making a noise about abortion. Why are people so intent on killing babies? It's money. It's money. They're making money doing this. And so you start talking against it and you're, you're tempting to cut into their profit. They don't like that. It's murder for hire. But we're so used to it, we just almost accept it now. It's just like, yeah, that's how it is. Well, it's not how it's supposed to be. And we need to make noise about that. Well, no doubt Annas used his position to arrange that Yeshua would be brought to him first. So that he might gloat over the downfall and just really try to get rid of this Galilean for good. He says, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. That's a reference to the faithful year that Caiaphas, in his role as high priest, unknowingly chose Yeshua, the Lamb of God, as the sin sacrifice for the covenant people. See, the high priest is picking a lamb to sacrifice. See, God's, God's in control. This whole thing is, this is God orchestrating everything that happens here. Verse 14 says, It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, this is a parenthetical reminder of what had been said back in John 11, verse 50. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Well, as I read this, it seems like Lazarus is telling us that Caiaphas had already determined that Yeshua was going to die. Hey, what if this one guy dies for the people? That's okay. This is not going to be a just trial, people. But Lazarus may also be reminding the readers that the arrest and death of Yeshua is to provide salvation for His people. Now, as I said earlier, John alternated his account with the events surrounding Yeshua's religious trial with the Peter's denial. And the literary technique contrasts Yeshua with Peter. Yeshua's being questioned. Peter's being questioned. Very different outcomes. Okay? Let's look at Peter's. Simon Peter followed Yeshua, and so did another disciple. Some unnamed guy, just kind of follow along. (laughs) Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Yeshua into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. There's a reason for all this. We'll talk about it. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch over the door and brought Peter in. Now, remember what we saw earlier in Mark. And they all left him and fled. All the disciples took off, so now Peter comes back. And this other disciple, they come back. So they all would have included Peter. Instead of running away to save his own skin, let's give him credit, he's there. The others are still hiding somewhere. They've run away. Peter comes back. He wants to be with his Lord. 
He wants to see if he can help his rabbi in any way. So he's there. Now, you see anything in these verses that raises questions? Okay, who's the other disciple? But the thing is that we don't see here because we're Americans is that going into the courtyard of the high priest and he brings Peter in. There's a problem with that. And the problem is no layman, which Peter was, was allowed into the great Beth Din. Especially during the feast days when there was a danger of defilement. You could defile the high priest. So any priest could come and go into the, this area for the priests here, but no layman could enter there at all. So how's Peter get in? Well, it says another disciple who was known to the high priest. This guy knows the high priest. He was the one who got Peter in. Now, if you read John 20, you'll see that the other disciple, and there's a lot of questions. Who's the other disciple? We should know this by now, right? The other disciple is the disciple whom Yeshua loved. We know that because John 20 verse 2 says, So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Yeshua loved. So we've seen in our study of this gospel that the disciple is not the Apostle John. He's not the son of Zebedee. It's his Lazarus who Yeshua had risen from the dead. This is Lazarus. He is writing this. Now, Barrett points this out, talking about being known to the high priest. He said the term... Gnostos is used in the Septuagint to refer to a close friend. So he says he knew the high priest. In other words, he was close to the high priest. He says this raises difficulty in identifying the other disciple as John, son of Zebedee. Since how could the uneducated son of an obscure Galilean fisherman be known to such a powerful and influential family in Jerusalem? All right, now... I think that, yeah, I agree. I don't think, you know, John was probably close to the high priest. But it wasn't impossible. But it makes much more sense that Lazarus was, because Lazarus was a priest. All right? The other disciple was known to the high priest. So how did Lazarus get into the courtyard of the high priest? Well, Lazarus is the Greek rendering of the name Eleazar. And Eleazar is a name found only in priestly lineages. So I believe that Lazarus was a priest. And that's why this gospel is so different. That's why he knows so many things that you don't hear reflected in the other gospels. As a priest, he's able to go into the Beth Din, where the high priest is with no problem. But Peter's a layman. He couldn't get in. Now let me give you several reasons why I believe that Lazarus was a Jewish priest. These are also reasons why the Apostle John, a Galilean, could not have written John. First of all, he knows the name of the high priest's servant. That's a detail we only get in the Gospel of John. How does he know his name? Because he's associated with that group. Secondly, only the fourth Gospel records the name of the high priest as honest. He knew the high priest by name. Thirdly, he was familiar with the family relationships of the high priest. Only in the fourth Gospel do we learn that honest is father-in-law to Caiaphas. How does he know all this stuff? Number four, Lazarus is known to the palace household. Peter has to wait outside, but Lazarus is let right in. He could have only entered if they knew him. They knew he was a priest. Fifthly, 
He was acquainted with the relationships of the palace staff. Only in the fourth Gospel are we told that one of those who questioned Peter's association with Yeshua was a relative of Malchus, the guy who got his ear cut off. And six, he was aware of the motives of the priest. Only the writer of the fourth Gospel ex- explains why the priest would not enter Pilate's judgment hall. It says, Then they led Yeshua from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. We're only told that in this Gospel. And it's my opinion, based on these facts, that Lazarus was a priest, and that's why he could enter into the court of the high priest, and that's why he got Peter in. Well, how did he get Peter in? I mean, if no layman is allowed in there, how did he get him in? Just, hey, he's a friend of mine. He's with me. I don't think that would have cut it. But here's what we have to understand. There was an exception to a layman being allowed to enter the court of the high priest if that layman was a witness. See, there were certain requirements that witnesses had to meet in order to attain entrance into the court area. It must first be determined whether or not he might be qualified to give testimony. An entire section in the Mishnah is devoted to the qualifications of witnesses. So Lazarus speaks to the doorkeeper, and he brought Peter in. I think he told the doorkeeper that Peter is a witness. There's a trial going on with Yeshua. He's one of the witnesses. I'm one of the witnesses. Notice what Yeshua says. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. See, during his trial, Yeshua says, question those who have heard. Spoke to them. Speak to them. He could have been referring to the two witnesses, eyewitnesses, that were standing right there in the courtyard when he made that statement. And they would have been able to describe everything they needed to know. They were with him for years. So Peter and John Eleazar would have been two witnesses who could have given the most reliable testimony of all. So I think that the only reason that Peter got into the court of the high priest was because he was attempting to help his rabbi, the Lord Yeshua. Now he gets questioned, you know, he gets into servant girl. Why would you be worried about what a servant girl said? Or what you said to them? You know, what what is his problem? He's there. He's brave, but he's obviously a little on edge here, okay? I want to help. I want to be here if I need to defend my Lord. Some servant girl says, hey, aren't you one of them? No! Dang, Peter. You're denying your rabbi? And before we get too hard on Peter, let's remember he didn't have to be there, okay? Yeshua told him that he would meet him in Galilee. Peter could have just taken off and hid after the resurrection like the rest of them did, but he didn't. He risked his life being there. And I think he knew his life was at risk. So, you know, you ever been in that situation? You want to be brave. You want to do what's right. But you're like, oh, this battle's going on. And No, I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not one of us. Well, from history we know that servants guarded the gates of the outer walls to the well-to-do home. And the wealthiest, the most eminent members of society were the high priests. They, they had some money, okay? You know why now, all right? So they'd have servants whose duties were to basically guard the gate. 
Now we got to go back to Yeshua's trial. <clears throat> All right. The high priest then questioned Yeshua about his disciples and his teaching. Yeshua answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Yeshua with his hand. And people think about that. Reaching out and slapping God's face. Don't we do that metaphorically sometimes? Yeshua answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Honest then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, the then here, the high priest then is significant because it informs us that the interrogation of Peter by the slave girl and the interrogation of our Lord are taking place simultaneously. All right, Peter said this, then this happened. All right, So John alternates between one interrogation and the other in order to place our Lord's response in a juxtaposition to those of Peter. Peter fails. Our Lord stands fast. He questioned Yeshua about His disciples and His teaching. This suggests that the nighttime arrest was to avoid the risk of what they thought might happen if they got His disciples fired up. See, they'd seen the crowds that had gathered to welcome Yeshua into Jerusalem. I mean, they saw the popularity that He had among the people. And now they're terrified that Yeshua could lead a mass rebellion, which literally would take away their position of wealth, prestige. The Romans could shut this whole thing down. So it's no wonder they question him about his disciples. In other words, they want to know, how, how many do you actually have? How willing are they to die for you? What is it going to take to set these guys off? See, they got him at night because they want it to be secret. They don't want to cause a scene here. So he's questioning. Tell me about your disciples. Tell me about your teaching. Yeshua had answered him, I've spoken openly in the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. So Yeshua ignores the question about the disciples. He doesn't answer him. He tells his interrogator that he has spoken openly both in the synagogue and the temple. Yeshua's response to honest recalls the words that are prophesied of the Messiah in Isaiah 48.16. Draw near to me, hear this from the beginning. I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord Yahweh has sent me and His Spirit. So he says, I've said nothing in secret, quoting Isaiah 48. Then Yeshua says, why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said. They know what I said. This is specifically addressed to Honest and is essentially a request for a formal trial. Honest was seeking to compel Yeshua to testify against himself. This is illegal. Before you have the trial, you get witnesses. The witnesses say something and you say, okay, we, we evaluate if it's true. And then if it's true, then you go get the person and bring them in. No witnesses. There's nothing. He starts here. He's trying to get Yeshua to incriminate himself. Under Jewish law, a defendant was not required to testify against himself. Rather, other witnesses were called to testify. Maimonides, who was a great Jewish medieval scholar, 
laid it out this way. He says, Our true law does not inflict the penalty of death upon a sinner by his own confession. Okay, you could plead the fifth. I won't, I'm not going to incriminate myself, okay? And so, Yeshua's reply here was basically a rebuke exposing honest, illegal approach. Why do you question me really means, I don't have to answer these questions. You're not following legal procedure. I don't even have to answer you at all. This is not how it goes. Barclay says this, One curious feature of legal procedure in the Sanhedrin was that the man involved was held to be absolutely innocent, and indeed not even on trial until the evidence of the witnesses had been stated and confirmed. So you see they're missing all that. They, they started with Yeshua, no witnesses. The argument about the case could only be begun when the testimony of the witnesses was given and confirmed. That is the point of the conversation between Jesus and Annas in John 18, 19-21. Jesus, in that incident, was reminding Annas that he had no right to ask him anything until the evidence of witnesses had been taken and found to agree. Now, it's at this point that one of the temple police slapped Yeshua, and the officer's question appeals to Exodus 22:28 that says, You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Well, he didn't do that. He didn't do either one of those. And Yeshua responded to this. All right, listen. <laughs> he has the power to do whatever he wants here, okay? This guy slaps him in the face. I mean, he could just phew, turn him to dust, you know, turn him to a pillar of salt, could have just blown, done whatever. He responds, but neither in anger nor fear. He asked for evidence that his reply to Honest had been negative. He was aware that Exodus 22:28 didn't apply to what he had done. He didn't revile at all. He just asked a question. Now, the Greek word here, rapisma, translated struck, means to a sharp blow with the palm of the hand. So this temple police officer just slapped him. Yeshua's response to this attack is logical rather than emotional or physical. He simply appeals for a fair trial. The man who struck him was not treating him fairly. This is a case of police brutality. All right, This is not what they're supposed to do. This is not his job. Think about who this officer is striking. He's striking God. And after Annas interrogates Yeshua, he sends him off to Caiaphas. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now the transfer of Yeshua from Annas to Caiaphas is significant in the fourth gospel simply because Peter is seen warming himself both before and after Annas' meeting and he doesn't appear to have changed location when the trial began before Caiaphas. So it shows the reader that the likelihood is that the two residents were together. Alright, so when he sends him to Caiaphas, he really doesn't have to go very far because they're in the same court. They lived in the same thing. These guys are out in the court. The house is right there. They're part of the same place. So these trials, it's not like you've got to go down the street, go a block. They live together. So Yeshua moves simply from one quarter to the other quarter, from Honest to Caiaphas, from one side of the square to the other. And He's questioned by Honest then Caiaphas. And finally, He's brought before the full Sanhedrin. Now, 
Lazarus doesn't talk about that. That's all that Lazarus records of Yeshua's trial. He doesn't repeat the synoptic accounts of the shameful trial before the illegally convened Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. And I would guess that John here also has in mind presenting Yeshua as a model of how believers are to live. He shows how he responds under an illegal trial, being struck illegally. And the actions, I think, of Yeshua here are an excellent commentary on his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. See, there Yeshua taught that one should never lash back or seek to retaliate for personal insults. And here he doesn't. Now, outside, Peter is watching this. Okay, he's standing in the court, he's watching this go on. And I don't think he ever forgot it. In his first letter, he tells us that we are to remember that scene because Christ is our example. And in 1 Peter 2.23, he says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Believers, this is how we're to respond when we're falsely accused. This is how we're to respond when we are unjustly vilified and abused. We are, as we talked about several weeks ago, image bearers of the living God. When the world looks at us, they're supposed to see Christ. We are His image bearers. We bear the image of Christ. Watch us. Watch what we say. Watch what we do. That's what God does. That's how it's supposed to be, right? All right, so he's setting an example for us. Let's go back to Peter. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, No, nah, not me, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you in the garden with that sword cutting off people's ears, my relative's ear? No. Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Now is the Greek word day. It could be translated meanwhile. John is returning to the servants, to the events, I mean, taking place outside the courtyard. While Yeshua is being interrogated inside, he's being interrogated outside. Now, in the culture of that day, a disciple's denial would shame the rabbi. Because many ancient hearers would feel that such behavior reflected badly not only on this important disciple, but also on Yeshua who chose him. Nearly all scholars agree that ancient Christians would never have invented this story. It just doesn't fit the narrative. It would be wrong. This is embarrassing. He's denying his rabbi. Now Mark's Gospel includes a very significant addition to the other accounts here. Here Yeshua predicts that the rooster will crow twice before Peter denies him three times. Now Mark informs us that the rooster did crow at first, and then he informs us the rooster crowed a second time. And this means that before Peter denied the Lord the last time, he was actually warned. The Lord told him this was going to happen. He heard it, but it was, it was like this guy can't help himself. His fear is just driving him here. Look what Luke says. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. He's there because he wants to help his Lord. He, he wants to be brave. He wants to support him. 
He has just denied him three times. The rooster crows and the Lord looks at him. That's a look Peter probably never forgot. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Can you relate to Peter there? You ever failed so miserably that you just, you know, it's like, Lord. You know, that look had to pierce Peter's heart. I'm sure he never forgot it as he goes out and weeps. Now, I want to share with you something that I think is kind of cool here. In verse 18, you know, Peter's warming himself before the fire. It's a charcoal fire. That's a term only used there, and it's used one other time, charcoal fire. It's used in John 21, 9, where the risen Yeshua had kindled a charcoal fire to cook breakfast for the disciples. See, at the first fire, Peter denies the Lord. At the second fire, the Lord restores Peter to fellowship and service. Just that connection in charcoal fire. It's only used twice. Once a denial, once a restoration. Brown writes this, John has constructed a dramatic contrast wherein Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. That's true. He denied it and said, I am not. Peter again denied it. In this denial of Peter, how do we see the sovereign control of Yeshua over his arrest and trial? He told the disciples this was going to happen. Peter asked Yeshua why he can't follow him earlier, and Yeshua answered him, he's willing to lay down his life for you. I'll lay down my life, Lord. I'll do whatever. And Yeshua says this. He says, Yeshua answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow. Do you have denied me three times? See, Yeshua says this ahead of time. Then it happens. They're like, wow, He told us this was going to happen. Because He's controlling the events that are happening. He's controlling this arrest, this trial. Now, I know it's easy to judge and criticize Peter. But I think we need to realize something before we do that, okay? Peter denies the Lord three times. How many times have we denied the Lord by our speech or by our actions? We all do it, don't we? It's easy to condemn Peter. He should have been... Well, why, why aren't we braver? Why do we deny the Lord by the way we live, by the things we say? our reactions to things. I think a couple of things led to Peter's fall here. I think one of the reasons Peter fell, and I think a big reason, is he didn't understand the plan of God. See, he thought in his mind, here's what God should do. And don't we all do that? Here's what God should do. Here's how I want God to do in my life. He envisioned the Messiah as one who would conquer Rome <coughs> and rule over Israel on the throne of David. That's the Messiah. What's this guy doing talking about dying and all this stuff? No, that's not good. So, I mean, his Messiah is being tried, and he's just, no, this is not right. When you think God has to work in a certain way, and He doesn't conform to your expectations, you become spiritually vulnerable. 
Why? Because this is how they think God's supposed to act. He's not acting like a God should act. And it's easy in your disappointment, in your confusion, in your hurt, to succumb to temptation. Well, I shouldn't be in this situation anyway because God shouldn't allow this. When we dictate our plan to God rather than submit to His plan, we're setting ourselves up for failure. See, we have to come to the complete and absolute understanding that God is sovereign. And He has a right to do whatever He does in our life. He is just. He is holy. He is loving. That's God. He created this. He created us. We're the clay. He's the potter. He can do whatever He wants to with us. That has to be first and foremost in our thinking. And when it is, when trials come, when difficulties come to our life, we're like, I don't like this, but hey, He's way smarter than me. I trust Him. I'm going to just bow to His sovereign will in this instance. I think another reason Peter fell is he was trusting his own strength and not trusting the Lord. He went there in his own power. I'm going to be here. I got to be here to help him. But he was... Look what Peter says in Matthew 26, 33. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Hmm. Here's a little lesson, Peter, for you that you're never going to do. You know, Peter thought he was better than the other disciples. They'll all fall away. Yeah, Lord, I understand. These guys are not too strong. It's me, Peter. I'm the leader of this group. I'll be there. He's trusting himself. That he's going to make it. You know, I love this verse from Paul. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. What are the areas we're to protect according to that verse? Our strengths. That's where you got to be careful. You say, well, would, that won't happen to me. That's where you got to watch out, okay? Because if you think you stand, you're not being guarding. You're not guarding that area. You're not protecting that area. I would never allow that to happen so you'll feel superior. We know what our weakness is and we hopefully try to protect them. It's the strengths that get us. When we think we stand, and Peter thought he said, I'll never fall away. He thought way more of himself than he should have, people. And so often, so do we. Believers, when God's plan is not your plan, have you ever had that happen? Let me give you some advice. Submit to His plan. Submit to His plan. Because He's much smarter than you. Trust Him. And never count on your own strength. Trust Him. So both of these areas where He fell, not understanding the plan of God, thinking He was better than He, both come down to the fact He wasn't really trusting God. He was trusting His plan. He was trusting His strength. We're to trust Him. Let me give you one of my favorite verses, Psalm 9:10. And those who know your name put their trust in you. So let me ask you, do you know his name? Now we've been over this a lot of times. You can replace the word name in the Bible with character. 
Those who know your character put their trust in you. They'll trust you. To know God's character is to be able to trust Him. Do you know Him well enough to trust Him? You know Him well enough to have such confidence in Him that you believe He is with you in your adversity even when you don't understand at all why it's happening. To know God's name is to know Him in an intimate, personal way. Knowing His character. He's faithful. He's just. He's loving. That's my God. I don't like this situation. Don't know why it's here. But I'm going to trust Him. You know, it's easy to trust God when everything's going your way. Isn't it? Yeah, we love to say praise God when we get everything we want. Next time your life's falling apart, say praise Him also. He's still worthy of praise. Nothing's changed with Him, okay? He's in control. I know, I quit teaching and gone to preaching. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank You for Your great love for us. Lord, if we could just wrap our heads around who You really are if we could really from the depths of our being know your name, I know we would trust in you. And help us, Lord, to spend time in your word studying it so we would get to know you. Lord, help us to study not for argument's sake, not for knowledge's sake, but to know you, the God of the word. And as we know you, Lord, may we put our trust in you. Thank you, Father, for your incredible love for us. So many times we're like Peter, Lord. We deny you by our lips. We deny you by our life. And yet you remain faithful. You continue to love us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, your sovereign grace in our lives. We love you, Lord. Amen.